want to read just a few verses from uh, the book of Revelation uh, in chapter 1. Uh, I want to read just verses 4 and 5 and also verse 9. And I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was and who is still to come from the sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. That's God's word for us today. Well, if you've been following uh, the signpost, then you'll know that the book of Revelation, far from merely being a window into the end times, is first and foremost a pastoral letter. It begins like other New Testament letters with a greeting that identifies both the sender and the recipients of the letter. Theologian Gordon Fee notes that the opening chapter does what a good introduction to any book is expected to do. Lay out the major players and the plot while giving a few hints as to what will unfold along the way. Unlike the other New Testament letters, John's introduction quickly takes on what Fee calls a decidedly Trinitarian character. John greets the churches on behalf of the Father, the Spirit and the Son, specifically imparting to them the grace and peace of the triune God. Each of the churches addressed in the letter was under severe pressure to compromise their allegiance to Jesus, some were already experiencing persecution, and for others it was on the horizon. Referencing his exile on Patmos, John clearly identifies with them and the situations that they are facing. He calls himself their brother and partner in tribulation in the kingdom and the patient endurance in Jesus Christ. So right from the outset of the letter, John is saying, look, I know what you're going through but I am going through the very same tribulation. In doing so, of course, he also sets revelation in a historical and social context, both of which are quite important uh, to help us understand the letter. John was writing most likely in the uh, early to mid-90s of the first century, and by this time he would have been in his 80s and was the last living Apostle. He had lived through the state-sponsored persecution begun by Nero in AD 65. He would lived through the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And by the time he was exiled to Patmos, Peter had been crucified, Paul had been killed by the sword. In fact, all the other apostles had been killed violently as they proclaimed the gospel to the far corners of the Roman world. Life had been extremely difficult for believers in those early years. And then, in AD 92, things got a whole lot worse. 
The imperial cult that worshipped the emperor as a living god had been around since the time of Augustus. But Emperor Domitian took up, it up a gear by ordering all citizens and subjects of the empire to worship him as Domini et Deus, Lord and God. He changed the name of the Roman Empire to the Eternal Empire, and so Rome is known even to this day as the Eternal City. And he gave himself the title Everlasting King. All over the empire, temples were built in his honour, and some cities even competed against each other for the, the honour, the right to build a temple to him. But all Roman citizens and subjects, without exception, were expected to go into the temple, to take a pinch of incense and throw it on the altar and say, Caesar Curious, meaning Caesar is Lord. It was not merely a public declaration of allegiance and loyalty to Caesar, it was also an act of worship to Domitian as a living God. Although Domitian was not well liked by his subjects, the imperial cult was very active in Asia Minor, but few citizens would have had a problem anyway in worshipping him. They worshipped many gods and, well, what was one more into the crowd? One more would make no difference. And of course, crucially, it was never a good idea to get on the wrong side of the all-powerful emperor. But for John and all true disciples of Jesus, it was a line that could not be crossed. For the central claim of Christianity is and always has been and always will be that Jesus Christ is Lord. Anything else is not Christianity. There is no other Lord other than Jesus. In Acts 17 verse 7, the charge against Paul and Silas was that they were guilty of treason against Caesar because they professed allegiance to another king, Jesus. The fact that John had been exiled to Patmos suggests that John had refused to offer a pinch of incense in worship of Domitian. And so from the perspective of the Roman state, John was both an atheist and a political agitator. It was probably out of respect for his age that he wasn't executed, but in fact was just exiled to Patmos, just 10 miles off the coast of Asia Minor. And Patmos housed a Roman garrison, so he would have been under their supervision and control. As John looked out over the Aegean Sea, I'm sure he would have imagined the churches that he loved dearly and had pastored. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. He knew these congregations personally and he would have had a real sense of the turmoil that they were going through, their fears and their anxieties, the pressure that they were under. He knew that they were being harassed by soldiers, by city authorities, by trade guilds. He knew they were also under pressure from compromise and heresies from within their own ranks. As Tim Chester puts it, these were congregations where, well, they were not people on the crest of a wave, carried along with excitement, seeing lots of success. Far from it. John not only knows what they are going through, he feels it deeply and personally. He is their partner in tribulation. And so he wants them to know that they're not on their own. 
that he too is under pressure from the might of Rome and he calls them to patient endurance and to hold fast to their allegiance to Jesus. The messages to the churches in chapters 2 and 3 and all the visions that follow them are intended to help them do exactly that. John was very aware of the difficulty of maintaining allegiance to Jesus in such circumstances. We know from historical records that in order to escape persecution and martyrdom, many believers abandoned the faith and returned to paganism. The simplicity of offering a pinch of incense before a statue of the emperor was in stark contrast to the degree of suffering experienced for refusing. The experience of these believers affirms what we've already noted in earlier studies, that on the surface of things, it appears that Jesus was wrong to say that the kingdom of God had come near. From the perspective of these congregations, the kingdom of Rome was the real power in the world. The Christians in Asia Minor must have wondered if the church had any future when confronted by the might and power and authority of Rome. And you know, many Christians today might well be wondering the very same thing. Throughout the COVID pandemic, the majority of church buildings were empty. The normal activities of the church's mission were restricted or or stopped altogether. And even fellowship amongst believers was extremely limited. Studies that have been done throughout the year have suggested that by the end of the pandemic, many churches may not reopen at all. And those that do are likely to be smaller. Alongside that, even the most liberal Christian would have to admit that the morals of our society are increasingly distanced from the moral vision of the Bible. And although I would never use the word persecution to describe it, there is little doubt that in the West, the church is increasingly marginalised by governments and apparently powerless in the face of massive social changes that have been accelerated by the circumstances of this pandemic. We might well be asking, what kind of future does the church have in the 21st century? Or as someone else once put it, the question is not so much does the church have a future, but does the future have a church? Many are worried about what will be lost during this pandemic. Will the church be one of the casualties? But Revelation is written to remind us that things are not merely as they seem. If we circle back to verses 4 and 5, we can see that John has already reminded the readers of some powerful truths that they may have forgotten, truths that they and we need to hold on to in difficult days. John brings his readers to the blessing of uh, sorry, John brings his readers to the blessing of grace and peace. Two things that they would need abundantly if they were to patiently endure what they were suffering, what they were going to suffer and remain faithful. And he also reminds them of the Trinitarian source of this grace and peace from God. Firstly, they are from God the Father. The phrase who is, who was and who is to come isn't a reference to Jesus who's mentioned last And in verse 8, John adds to to it the title, the Almighty. So the one who is, who was and who is to come is the Almighty. And this is a term that's used normally only in reference to God the Father. 
and John highlights three specific aspects of what it means for them to have grace and peace from their Heavenly Father. He's reminding them that God is eternal. God the Father is the God who is, the God who was, the God who is to come. He is God over the great sweep of cosmic history and whilst Roman emperors would come and go, he would remain the eternal God. We mustn't ever forget that. When John wrote Revelation, the Roman Empire had been around for uh, 600 years and it would survive for another 400, arguably the greatest empire in human history. But like all empires before it and since, it faded, declined and fell. The Roman Empire does not exist today. It is now a subject of interest for historians and archaeologists and storytellers and movie makers. If you go to the city of Ephesus today, you can see one of the temples that was built to worship Domitian. At least you can see what's left of it because it's a ruin. And like Domitian himself, it's really nothing more than a footnote in history, a paragraph in an academic textbook. In contrast, God the Father who is, who was and who is to come remains eternally God, the loving Heavenly Father. The power of Rome is a fact of history and time, but the power of God is a fact of eternity. John wanted his readers to know that they could patiently endure because God the Father is eternal. He was God during the reign of Domitian. He would be God in the reign of the next Caesar and the next and the next. We mustn't forget that. The world around us may be changing at an alarming rate, but God is unfazed. He is the eternal one who sits on the throne. Our anxieties about the future are misplaced, for history has, in a sense, been nothing more than a series of one new normal being replaced by another. But God has always remained who he is, the same yesterday, today and forever. John reminds us that God remains eternally our Father. As the worship chorus goes, I know who holds the future. And the one who holds the future is, as John notes in verse 8, the Almighty, our Almighty Father. Everywhere you went in the empire, you were confronted by the symbols of Roman power and authority. And the believers in Asia Minor must have felt powerless and helpless in the face of that might. You know, it's easy to feel overwhelmed and helpless and powerless in the world today. And so we need to be reminded that the powers around us are not the real power. Our eternal, heavenly Father who loves us is the Almighty One. And take note of that. He's not the quite mighty. He's not the very mighty. He's not even the extremely mighty. He is the Almighty. And as Revelation will go on to show, the reality that we so often fail to see is that the powers and principalities, great and powerful as they are, 
are no match for him. Furthermore, John reminds them that God is the God who is not only eternal and almighty, he's the God who intervenes in human history. He's the God who is, who was, and who is to come. God is active in human affairs now. Just as he was active in the past, so he will be active in the future. In 2 Peter 3, Peter confronted those who doubted that God is the God who is to come, the God who intervenes, the God who is. He wrote, above all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. In other words, life is going on as normal and God's doing nothing to stop the evil in the world. There's no judgment, uh, there's no repercussions, so let's just keep doing what we want without any fear of God. Peter's response was to say that such people deliberately forget the ways that God has intervened in the past. And he uses the flood as an example. As he has intervened in the past, so God will intervene in the present and in the future. He is coming to repay each person for what they have done. Of course, from our vantage view, in history, we can see that God did intervene in their situation. In AD 410, the Visigoths sacked Rome. Then in AD 455, the Vandals finished the job and the Roman Empire fell apart. Since then, many other empires have come and gone. But our God is eternal, almighty, and coming to enact his judgments on all empires that are opposed to his rule and reign, no matter how powerful they are, no matter how long they last, they will all fall. Revelation also promises that those who patiently endure, who overcome, will reign with him forever. Secondly, we see that peace and grace come from the Holy Spirit. John uses the term seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit. Um, but of course, we've already noted that all numbers in Revelation are symbolic. The number seven is the most common number in Revelation. It represents perfection, fullness or completeness. And so this is a reference to the fullness, the complete perfection of the Holy Spirit. John tells us that the Spirit is before the throne and so it is the Spirit who connects us with the eternal, almighty God, our Father, who sits on the throne. It's the Spirit who mediates the presence of God the Father and Jesus the Son to us. And we should note that John was in the Spirit when he received these visions. John is reminding his readers of a truth that Paul makes explicit in Romans 8 when he writes, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Thirdly, John reminds them that grace and peace come from Jesus, 
the all-conquering son. He's described as the firstborn from the dead, a reference to his resurrection. He has conquered death itself, and in the vision that follows, he is described as having the keys of death and Hades. Revelation 12 and 11 speaks of those who have overcome as those who did not love their lives as so much as to shrink from death. Why should we not fear death? Because Jesus has conquered it. He has the keys. Death, the last enemy, has been defeated. Jesus is also described as the ruler of the kings of the earth. And that would have had special significance for John's readers. The Roman practice when he conquered a country was to let local rulers continue to rule under their authority. And so during Jesus' earthly ministry, Herod was king, but he was not the real power. The real power was Rome. The point was clear. Caesar ruled over the kings of the earth. Haha, <laughs> not so, says John. The true ruler of all the kings of the earth, even over Rome itself, is Jesus. And so he's described in Revelation as being the king of kings, the one who conquers all kingdoms. Things, <coughs> excuse me, things are not as they seem. There's more going on than meets our unaided senses. In the uncertainty of these times, we have available to us the peace and grace from God, the eternal almighty Father, the Spirit who is before the throne, and from Jesus, the all-conquering Son. It is that grace and peace that will help us to patiently endure whatever it is we are facing right now in this moment. It will help us to endure whatever is still to be faced. None of us know what the future holds. And so the wisest course of action is to trust ourselves to the one who holds the future. Thanks for listening. May God bless you in the week ahead.